How can we think about imperialism and colonialism today? What can Ukrainians and Indians tell each other in this respect? How can we try to look for horizontal connections between formerly colonized nations? You are listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine and its series Thinking in Dark Times by Ukraine World. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to Aman Seti, an Indian journalist and writer, former editor-in-chief of HuffPost India. Aman Seti is also the author of A Free Man, A True Story of Life and Death in Delhi. Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current Russian war against Ukraine a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Aman Saiti, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining this conversation. Uh, it is very important for me uh, to enlarge the thinking uh, about Ukraine and about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And obviously, uh, such countries as India play a, a very important role. So, uh, what is your impression? How the Russian invasion is perceived in India? What are the major ideas which are in the public space? What is the position of the government? What you see in the cultural field, in the civil society? So I would, I guess, preface my, my remarks to, to actually this, this entire conversation by saying that a lot of my thinking about this subject is what I would call messy thinking, in that these are the, the thoughts I have contingent at this moment. But I have a feeling that I don't think this is a good way to enter the question that you asked. I think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has prompted a lot of people in a cross-section of, let's say, the Indian government and intelligentsia to think differently from the frameworks that we've inherited. And by that, I mean that the inherited broad framework of Indian thinking, uh, post-independence Indian thinking, is that after India was colonized, of course, as as you know, your listeners would know, by the United Kingdom, by Great Britain, and um, after the 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 India got independence in 1947, and when the Cold War began, Indian policymakers very consciously sought to position India as non-aligned, which is not aligned with either NATO or with you know what was I think at that point called the CIS. Um, but what this meant in practice over the years was that India ended up relying on the on the former USSR for a for a vast amount of its military equipment, uh, for a lot of technical assistance, and Indian policymakers, a large number of them, the intelligentsia was um, influenced by by communist Marxist thinking, and there is a rich kind of tradition of leftist, broadly speaking, leftist thinking in India. Um, over the years, some of the more radical factions have actually 
kind of draw their lineage now more to what they call Maoism or Marxist-Leninism. And so there is a rich kind of way of thinking about this. There's also been uh, an understanding after the, the dissolution of the USSR that Russia was somehow the kind of spiritual successor to the USSR. And so it, the Indian defense industries, for example, the Indian army, the Indian uh, the army to a large extent, and the Air Force continue to rely very intensely on, on Russian uh, weaponry. And so there has always been a sense that Russia is a good ally to India um, in on the global stage. And so I think that with that kind of context, we also know that over the last decade, decade and a half, uh, there has been a lot of kind of rapprochement between India and the United States. Um, uh, the two sides have been consistently trying to find new ways of collaborating. And I think during the kind of whole globalization, liberalization period, there was a way that you know, American companies are now invested in India. So, so that too has has been an evolving relationship. Um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it has prompted, therefore, on the one hand, among we can talk about the government reaction first if you want. It's it's the it's the easiest to explain, which is that the Indian foreign policy kind of establishment has has essentially taken the position that. This is, you know, um, all war is bad. They are against war. Um, India also has a has a vested kind of position on, on the other hand, on the importance of national borders and national borders should be respected. This, of course, comes from the fact that India has a very long and contested border with China. So it's very important for India to actually take a position saying, no, um, you know, internationally recognized borders are a very good and important thing and no one should violate them. Having said that, I think the the sort of long history of American intervention in Afghanistan, in Iraq and elsewhere has made Indian the Indian forest foreign policy establishment quite wary of getting drawn into large global blocks. So there has always been a suspicion of this. And I've been told by the West that this is the good fight now, we must all fight this fight. The Indian reaction is to say, you know, these are things we stay out of. So, for instance, an example of this is India has historically had tried to maintain an independent trading relationship with Iran for oil for, for a long time. And the kind of public position that India took when the United States was trying to sanction Iran or was sanctioning Iran was that India and Iran have historical cultural ties. So these are, of course, all forms of articulation of providing... I would say a justification for doing something that is in what the Indian government thinks is in India's self-interest. So at this point, uh, the Indian government's position has, you know, India, as many of the listeners of your podcast would know, continued to trade in Russian oil uh, and has abstained from at least two votes in the United Nations. Um, some of these facts, of course, keep changing as the war stretches on, but but this is broadly the kind of position where India is trying to say, this is something we don't want to get involved in, broadly speaking. So that's the Indian kind of foreign policy and the Indian government. Um, there's been a lot of interesting writing which also shows that this is potentially a place where the Indian government and foreign policy establishment actually sees a moment to to flex their influence, to to actually try and say, is there a way we can actually navigate out of this where 
we demonstrate our importance to the rest of the world, uh, an importance that I think the Indian for, foreign policy establishment kind of and the Indian government feels that, you know, India has historically been denied her place on the world stage. So this is now a moment for India to assert her importance on the world stage. So these are all positions that, that of course, are being articulated in various forms of writing, in, you know, talking points that, you know, the foreign ministry presumably circulates. Um, and so this is this is like how I guess I would think about, about the government, uh, the government's position. I think that if we were to start thinking about how the Indian intelligentsia has has perceived this again, there is no one Indian intelligentsia. There are there is a significant section of of, of people who do feel that that this is like there is a reflexive anti-Americanism in a large part of the Indian intelligentsia, which I mean. To be fair, I think is quite you know is is well earned, and I was reading a a recent um, lecture by this American academic foreign policy person called Fiona Hill, where she sort of said that Ukraine is, I'm paraphrasing massively here, but is sort of being punished by as a sort of guilt by association, and it's sort of being punished actually by both sides, right? So um, because Ukraine is seen as essentially at this moment, the, the 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 kind of independence and territorial integrity of Ukraine is seen as, as something that is in the interests of the United States, which automatically makes a lot of people suspicious about it. So it's actually quite a, a tragic situation to to be placed in, I, I guess, as a country or as a nation or as a people. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Aman. Indeed, uh, this uh, Ukraine is, is uh, very often a kind of a victim of this anti-Americanism that we can see in, in many parts of the world. And how do you think we can think together in these terms? Because for many countries in the world who, who are trying to uh, to criticize American imperialism, and rightly so, uh, these countries are also trying to seek for alternatives. And one of these alternatives is like the Soviet bloc and the Soviet Union, and Russia and all the rest. And uh, by thinking in these terms, uh, I think mm, people in these countries also forget that Russia itself is an empire. And there is a long history of Russian imperialism, maybe even longer, obviously longer than American imperialism, and as long, at least, as long as the European imperialism. And uh, while we try to redescribe the Ukrainian history in these terms. Do you think this redescription can find ears in countries like India because because of this common experience of uh, being colonized, being uh, considered in pejorative terms, being uh, considered be, being simplified and uh, all the rest. I think it is a powerful argument. I think and I, I speak for myself as someone who, who you know, has, um, you know, as this, this war has, has, has continued, as this invasion has continued, have found myself thinking deeper and harder about, about kind of Eastern Europe um, than I had in the past. And I think that this is an important and powerful 
history to, and it also offers a, a much needed corrective to the way that the constitution of the USSR has traditionally been seen in, in, in the non-West, right? That um, it has always been a, a, a sort of almost clouded in mystery how the USSR was actually constituted, right? The way that we sort of are taught it in a very, very sort of easy shorthand, it is that, you know, there was the Russian Revolution and then there was the USSR. And it's almost like, but what happened between these two things, right? And 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 how did how did all of these 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 really disparate and really diverse um, sort of peoples come to be part of this kind of large kind of empire, right? And rather the a union as as it was described. And I think that talking about Russian imperialism and talking about how the constitution of the of the USSR was was not a kind of you know necessarily solely an entirely democratic expedition you know sort of experience and experiment but was actually a violent a violent process a process of violent integration I think is an important story to put out and an important history to be acknowledged and that is in it of itself irrespective of whether you know it is something that has resonance with you know the rest of the world whether it strategically carries value in in winning over allies from former colonized or decolonizing parts of the world like independent of the of the of the downstream sort of ways this narrative is received i think it is a narrative that most certainly requires to be heard more often more loudly and i think after the invasion of ukraine more urgently so i agree with you on the first part of it like that it is a sort of hidden history it is a history that has not been told enough and it is a history that that you know um kind of even when we think about the when we think about in india when we think about the the dissolution of the ussr um it's not like we subsequently sort of uh, gained a lot of information about what various countries were were doing to sort of you know um sort of decolonize themselves and and rid themselves of the of the sort of markers of of being sort of like colonized by 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 Russia on the question of why of or if this particular narrative would or this specific history would would have resonance this is something i've been thinking a lot about since you and I first spoke at, at this very interesting conference in Tbilisi, uh, Zag, which is that um, I think, so India got its independence 75 years ago. Um, Ukraine won its independence, I think, in 1991. So that would be about 32 years ago, about half that time. And so I think that in India, there are many colonialism is almost perceived in in some sections as a structural a structural sort of trauma right as something that helps say my generation understand why the world looks the way it does right now it helps us understand structural inequality it helps us understand why the world is organized in a certain way why certain countries are rich and certain countries are poor but it it is not the intimacy of the colonial experience has been lost because I did not experience it. 
my father did not experience it my grandfather who who experienced it sort of you know he he died a year he died earlier this year he was 101 for them the the sort of foundational trauma of the of the colonial experience was the partition of you know the subcontinent into india and pakistan so my family actually comes from originally my from the pakistan afghanistan border and in 47 my grandfather and you know his his family sort of as refugees crossed over into what is now the independent republic of india so i think there was an intimacy to that and that there is a way that he would viscerally understand what the ukrainians are experiencing but i think for a younger generation of people in the global south given that decolonization is of course on the one hand only 70 years old so in the life of a of a nation not very long but in the life of a people quite long ago so i think it is something that would most definitely help place what we're seeing in eastern europe in context and understand the the layers and layers of the tragedy that is this invasion but in terms of and I, and i think it would definitely be something that would i hope help intellectuals and you know public thinkers and and the intelligentsia and the indian elites rethink what their what's happening in central europe one thought that i sort of had and i think this kind of came to me about this idea of like what does it mean like colonialism and imperialism is i think the thing that is tragically been illustrated most obviously in the last year with regards to ukraine's status as a former colony or as a decolonizing country is that if a colon when you think about a conflict and as i said this is all messy thinking by me but if you think about the fact that when there is a conflict certain countries are described in geopolitical terms and certain communities are described as profoundly as individuals and i think this is the difference between a colonizer and a formerly colonized place so when you're described in geopolitical terms as ukraine is right now it drives home the fact that this is this is a this is a former colony the way that india has talked about in geopolitical terms in terms of like counterbalancing china or afghanistan has talked about in geopolitical terms as a strategic central asian republic um and when you talked about like in terms of like the profound human tragedy of something the way that for example we think about the narrative around something like 911 or something like pearl harbor it's at that point these things are not described in geopolitical terms right these things are described as like profound human tragedies and the thing is that both these things are profound human tragedies and so i guess the similarity i would see here is that the the kind of global south or the developing world or the majority majority world or however you want to call everyone who is not you know a certain kind of western community is that some of us are are talked about as as in 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 the language of 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 resources and geopolitics and some of us get talked about as people and then when you see who's talked about how you kind of realize the commonality we experience between us i think this is a perfect point and this is something that we ukrainians uh, uh, struggle for for many years 
when we were portrayed, for example, the revolutions in Ukraine that took place in 2004 and then in 2013 were described in international press, uh, initially in the Western press as well, uh, as a geopolitical, something geopolitical conflict, right, between Russia and between the West and, and all this stuff. And we were we were fighting against it. We were trying to say that, look, it's not about geopolitics, it's about 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 people who are standing up for their rights and not thinking in terms of okay whom we join Russia or United States or Europe or whatever but thinking in terms of why uh, this state e exerts so much violence against its citizens and how to overcome it and why there is so much corruption in the power and how to overcome it and the same actually with this with this war so people are defending their homes defending their families defending their roads defending their memories and it's not the war like ukrainians want to join nato or whatever it's not about this and the topic of imperialism that you mentioned is really very interesting because on the one hand the the paradox that when we are talking with non-Europeans, uh, is that, look, uh, Europe was not only the imperial power. Europe was not only a colonizer. There, there, there were parts of Europe that were colonized, that were also subject to uh, imperial powers, that would suffered from imperial powers. And if we talk about the whole bunch of countries in the Central and Eastern Europe, this is precisely... Uh, the countries that actually were slowly emancipating from various empires, from the Russian Empire, from the Ottoman Empire, from the Habsburg Austro-Hungarian Empire, from the German Empire, etc., etc. Uh, at the same time, when we look at the imperial countries, such as United States, there are big parts of the population whom we can consider as actually colonized, internally colonized. We have recently made, I've recently made a conversation with Jason Stanley, an American philosopher from Yale, who is actually talking about this massive incarceration of black Americans in, in America, which, which is a, a big problem. So this internal colonization, treating your own citizens as not really equal citizens. And the same we can talk about Russia, this idea of internal colonization of uh, citizens who suffer from extreme violence and therefore are thinking, are, are seeing the world only in terms of violence. Either I am attacked or, or I will attack. And this provokes this, this worldview. So all these things, I, I think, leads us to kind of rethinking imperialism and colonialism not just in the terms of the relations between the master and the subject, but also between the colonizer and the colonized, but also in terms of first complicating vision of the imperialism that you can have self-colonization, internal colonization, internal imperialism in imperial countries, and you can have also imperial, you know, thinking neo-imperial thinking in countries which were uh, colonized or suffered from big violence and at the same time and here I'm, I'm leading to my question to you that probably this Ukrainian in, and Indian Ukrainian and I don't know Mexican and Brazilian Ukrainian and South African Ukrainian and Kenyan Ukrainian and uh, Syrian common thinking about imperialism should in entail rather 
the, the, the thinking between ourselves and conversation between ourselves and, and horizontal conversation between ourselves so that we see those things that we have in common, even though we understand that geopolitically, I mean, we were colonized by different powers. Therefore, we have different you know, vision of these powers. And uh, Ukrainians consider Russia as, as evil, absolute evil. For some people in the world, probably it's not the case. And some people in the world would consider the Brits or the Americans as absolute evil. But this is this is not a question that should lead us to stop conversation. Rather, we should le- look at each other and, and, and look at those structural simira- similarities between us. What do you think? I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, I there was a there's a sort of game that that this macabre game that, you know, friends of mine from, from, I, I, I lived in Addis Ababa for a while and there would be a large, and Addis is a very interesting cosmopolitan city where because of the African Union, people from all over Africa and all over Asia and all over the world are frequently transiting through and, and often we would find ourselves, you know, a group of, you know, Indians and Kenyans and Somalians and Sudanese and everyone sitting and being like, so, you know, we, who do you think was the best country to be colonized by, right? And you think about this as a sort of absolutely absurd game that can only be played in in the form of 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 trying to trying to almost subvert um, the kind of power equation that 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 colonization produces. I think having heard you talk and having read your your work around Russian imperialism, Russian colonialism, and how that's kind of actually really decentered and, and in a very good way uh, profoundly forced me to think what i came away with was that it's probably helpful to think about colonialism as a set of tools a set of very dangerous tools that were kind of discovered at at a, at a historical moment where were kind of communities self-organizing as kind of early states or well, not early states, but self-organizing as states realized that it was possible to oppress another community in a really totalizing fashion. And one that, that, that spanned not just, you know, the, the, the classic kind of form of, of captive populations, but of, you know, this kind of weird rule-based form of oppression, right? And I think that once these tools or once this ideology or was sort of let out, it's sort of there now for everyone to, or powerful groups to, to deploy as they see fit. And so whether it's internal colonization in, in the US or in Russia, or actually in, in India, it's very interesting that uh, Mohandas Gandhi, one of the, one of the major independence um, leaders in, in India, one of the freedom fighters of India, very complicated, problematic person uh, and figure, um, but also capable of very interesting insights, sort of writes at one point in, in, in this magazine that I think it was called Young India, that... India needs to eschew a, a capitalist market framework or a purely capitalist market framework because it's only possible to to develop in that fashion 
if you have colonies. And if India does not have any colonies, India will be forced to colonize herself. And when you kind of, I spent uh, several years and I continue to engage with writing about this central, this large area in central India, which for since independent India, I have argued India has treated as a colony. It is essentially got a, a large rural, almost forest dwelling population. It's very rich in resources. And the narrative is one of progress. And the people are called, uh, the people call themselves Adivasis. And the narrative from the city is always, we have to civilize, we have to bring progress to central India. And the way we're going to do that is by taking people off their lands, putting the children in school, and making the men work in mines to, to, to basically mine for iron ore and copper and zinc, and because this is what India needs to develop. So you see a very clear sort of almost colonial relationship there, right? So, so when you say that one of the things that you and I have talked about is how do we kind of think about this in a very clear way? And I think the, the terrifying thing is how one realizes even in, in decolonizing societies, decolonization is not a clean-cut process of cutting yourself off from your former colonial oppressor who, but it's rather a, a way of kind of breaking out of a certain pattern of justifying the exploitation of people in the name of civilizing the very people that you're oppressing, right? And and I think that one of the things you've asked me is like, how do, what are the, what are the kinds of conversations we can have between each other? And I suppose what I would say, and this is not to say this is a lesson for Ukraine or this is something Ukrainian people can learn. I think it is just me describing an experience and a process that I've seen in India. And I would be interested in, in what you have, you know, what, what your thoughts are. But when I think about Ukraine, I've been thinking a lot about Kashmir. And for your, for your listeners, some of whom may or may not know the intricacies of it, but Kashmir is a region in the northernmost part of, of India. And it's claimed by India. It's also claimed by Pakistan. Uh, parts of it are also claimed by China. Uh, there are a group of people there called the Kashmiri people. Um, there is a religious angle there. Um, and at this point, there is a section of, of, of part of India that, I mean, a part of Kashmir that, you know, uh, Pakistan controls. There's a part of it that India controls. And the Kashmiri people for a long time have been saying what they want is independence. Now, without going too deeply into, into the question of Kashmir itself, what I have witnessed is a few different things. One, that despite being part of the same nation, it is possible to exist in, say, Delhi, while in other part of your country is literally under sort of siege by its own, by your own army. And it's possible to to kind of create a sort of magical thinking where the war becomes very far away. Um, the other thing that I've, and this is in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a country that constantly talks about like the historical trauma of colonialism, right? It's also that it's not like that war has no effect. What that war does is it produces an intense strain of militarized thinking throughout the the country. So it becomes a form in which we, 
as citizens start accepting a larger and larger and larger role that the military and the security services and the intelligence services and the police play in our lives because you could be living thousands and thousands of kilometers away from kashmir but you know kashmiri insurgents can be anywhere Cons- you know conspiracy theorists can be anywhere spies can be anywhere and so it produces a you know arundhati roy this 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 you know very very interesting thinker and writer from india has talked about the fact that you know india is becoming more like kashmir and kashmir is becoming more like india as a way to as you say complicate this master slave dynamic right where even the act of of suppressing a region um in the periphery transforms the the metropolis and i think this is the thing that i think about ukraine the most which is ukraine will win this war but what would have happened to ukrainian society by the end of it right and what will be the legacy of it i've been reading again geopolitics i i i really have a problem with geopolitical thinkers but there's been kind of this conversation about how you know you turn ukraine like taiwan into a porcupine which is it's so heavily militarized that you know nobody can can touch it because you know it'll anyone who tries to invade will be will be sort of will will have punitive costs but what does it mean to live inside a porcupine is something that i found myself thinking about again and again that's a very good point and i'm i'm trying to reflect upon it uh, by kind of a juxtaposing two ethical ethical systems or two ethos one of the ethos of a warrior and another as is an ethos of exchanger i would call it so uh, the the ethos of the warrior tells you that you are under threat uh, there is insecurity and you need to fight um, and uh, without this ethics actually ukraine would not survive obviously so there is this ethics in many ukrainian citizens that you you doesn't you uh, there are certain moments that you don't need to talk anymore you don't need to just to sit on your uh, in your chair you need to fight you need to go to the army or you need to help the army and thanks to this ethics ukraine survived but at the same time if if it goes very deep into society then we kind of lose this ethics of exchange of a dialogue of of talking to each other and this is also dangerous so but if if you go into extremes with everything it's it's dangerous if you go in in extreme with this ethics of exchange then you basically say that you can talk about anything you can exchange about anything and you can compromise about anything and this is the problem that we see actually today in the world that so many countries so many governments are ready to compromise with russia on on some some issues many issues trade or whatever else so both these ethics are if you if you take them to extreme are, are dangerous but we need to find a balance between them so we need to understand where the ethics of exchange stops and and there should be ethics of a warrior or where these ethics of a warrior should stop so that we can come back to conversation and dialogue and 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 so on and so forth and uh, in what you said i also found so remarkable parallels when you were telling about the central india and this idea of progress and taking people from the land and and putting them in the mines well this is one of the traumas of the ukrainian history and it is it has deep relation with the soviet union has deep relation to the 1920s 1930s because it was pre- 
precisely because of this idea that Stalinist con collectivization took place when actually collectivization means that peasants were stripped of their land and they're put in a kind of a collective prisons which were called kolkhoz the collective uh, agricultural enterprises and uh, the, the 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 punishment by famine the great famine of the 1932 1933 when about four million of ukrainian peasants were killed uh, were actually were starved to death because there were uh, all the the food that they produced was taken away from them and the villages were encircled by soldiers without any possibility to leave uh, this is all, all also was done in the idea of progress in the idea of you know socialism in the idea in the idea of uh, that we are cutting ties with the past with this traditionalist agriculture and we 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 go into industrialization etc so we we see how uh, the ideas of progress can also kill not only the far right ideas can kill but also kind of far left ideas can kill and this is also about um, extremism i think it's it's also about going uh, going into extremes with something and when you ask how Ukrainian society will live after the war, of course, this is a, a question that worries me a lot. And uh, but we still, we are still, of course, concentrated on 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 the war. We we don't really think about what comes next because, frankly speaking, if even despite the fact that we all repeat in Ukraine that victory will be ours and we will win this war. There is nothing guaranteed. Uh, this David against Goliath uh, situation is how uh, how much resources do we have to to continue it forever? Resources, I mean, human resources, uh, the lives of our people, soldiers and civilians, money, arms, etc. So, and I think th this is the question that that. L locks our horizon of thinking because uh, we we all very feel uncomfortable when we are invited to talk about so how you will reconstruct Ukraine, what will happen after the victory, what will happen after the war. The victory is not on your reach of your hand, right? It's not there, it's not available, it's not, it's not inevitable. There are lots of things that need to be done to bring it. And... Um, and the thing is that Russia is a huge, huge country with huge resources. Therefore, we're trying to talk with uh, with different people and different nations. And this leads me to the next question. Uh, always when we're trying to talk about, let's say, non-Western world, um, we, we see that the major logic uh, in countries like India, in countries like Brazil, in countries like Mexico, in countries like... South Africa, in countries like China, I think the major logic is um, pragmatism. So we're always facing this uh, answer, the pragmatism. Except for China, probably, which is trying to wage real confrontation with the West. With all other countries, this is, this is the same response. So we're asking why Indians keep on buying Russian oil, Russian armaments, because of the pragmatism, because of the national interests. Why Brazilians uh, continue to buy Russian fertilizers, because of the pragmatism. And, of course, we understand that. I mean, governments need to be thinking about their economy, etc., etc. 
But at the same time, this leads us to an idea that there is profound cynicism in the global politics and governments will only think about their interests. They will never think in terms of values. And, and uh, of course, this actually leads to a very pessimistic conclusions. What, what do you think of, about it? What are the ways of Ukrainians talking to Indians uh, to kind of maybe go away from this logic of pragmatism? It is possible at all. Yeah, this is a really so you know every time I I I try to to think about this question I found myself at at a dead end, right? Um where I was like, okay, here we are confronted as you said again by by pragmatism and it it got me thinking and this is I preface this by saying this is probably not a good answer and this is probably not the answer that 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 anyone would find very helpful but i think that if we think about just this question of geopolitics right and this question of geopolitical pragmatism i think that the problem lies in let's start with what will be a digression but let's start with thinking about the language of geopolitics and what i realized when i kept trying to think about this was that the problem with the language of geopolitics and pragmatism is that it it normalizes and it rationalizes injustice and it obscures more than it actually reveals right so as you said it's like this is the pragmatic choice so the question i found myself thinking is okay what does it actually obscure and i think that what it actually and here's another this is again as i said messy thinking of mine but i think what it obscures is that that geopolitics is actually profoundly divorced from any form of democracy so that we are led to believe and there's a whole like a discipline's worth of 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 language which makes us believe that somehow when the indian government takes a position or the brazilian government takes a position or the ukrainian government in ukraine is an exceptional case right now because it is at a, a state of at a, it is a state in a state of war right now but every other country that that these actions are being taken on behalf of its citizenry but it's not like let's talk about oil it's not like the indian people have ever been asked in any form of dialogue by the indian government of what is it that energy actually means to you what is the kind of energy policies you would like what is a form of energy sourcing consumption production that would actually be truly beneficial to a vast majority of indians right it is assumed that there is a that it is it is more that there is a there's a, a framework like many years ago i had somebody talk to me about the fact that to to power a steel plant you need a vast amount of electricity that is generated and delivered to one place to power villages you need lots of low power forms of electricity that are disparate discrete dispersed so the but the reason that the electricity grids look the way that they do the reason that energy grids look the way they do is because the point is to power the steel plant and then 
providing electricity to the village is an afterthought. So if we use that analogy and think about oil, because that is a commodity we're thinking about the most, it is a really good question that you ask, which is, what is India doing with the oil? What do we actually need these, this oil for? What is, the, what is the logic of development and progress? What is the conversation that the Indian state has had with its own people about how we think, conceptualize, want to think about energy before it, you know, talks to the world about the fact that it will continue to buy oil from a certain place or not buy oil from somewhere else in the interests of the Indian people. So I think that the pragmatism that that we, the word that, that, that is bandied about, which is pragmatism, is actually a word that masks a profound deficit of democracy in nation states around the world. So it means that that large kind of global interests, and now I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but honestly, it means that large corporations with capital flows that and commodity flows can act while acting allegedly in the name of the citizens, but actually acting in self-interest. So in some ways, India at this point is laundering oil for the world, right? Because the oil that India is buying from Russia, it is then exporting. And some of that oil is going back to Europe. And some of that oil is going to the United States. And when you ask them, why are you buying it? Then it's again pragmatism, right? So I think this makes us really question. I think the war in Ukraine is just forcing so so much hard thinking because it makes us question in whose name is anyone acting anymore. Right. And I think it is really, really important that... We we ask questions which were not asked before, probably. And this war, however tragic it is, and for us it's it's tragedies every day. Uh, but uh, it is also an incentive for us to to think, maybe think differently than uh, than we thought before. This is th- this is why this series is called Thinking in Dark Times. Maybe my last question, you mentioned Arundhati Roy, and um, I must say that Arundhati Roy is a, has become recently very uh, famous and popular in Ukraine, thanks to several translations of her novels. And, um, and this also shows that we uh, Ukrainians can really recognize ourselves in, in Indians. Of course, there is also lots of tradition of interest in in India, in Indian uh, religious traditions, in Indian philosophical traditions, um, in in Hinduism, in in Buddhism, and um, all these things. But also this interest in contemporary Indian culture, I think it's it's very interesting. And one of the issues why uh, Arundhati Roy, I think, is read attentively in Ukraine, is that this kind of a f- that uh, this, this feeling of locality that she produces? This is pre- pre- this is my hypothesis. Maybe I'm wrong. This feeling of of locality and and digging into places which are not known anywhere else. And Ukraine is trying to rethink this locality. It's a, its own locality. So what we have right now uh, in our culture is the coming back to these roots of our culture, the the, the, the multiple localities of, of culture. So this is the trend. 
and why it is important because precisely because the Soviet imperialism was trying to erase localities, was trying to say that everything is similar, right? You you will have similar streets uh, on in your in your in your cities. You will have similar cities which will look precisely exactly like each other. You will have the street names. Uh, exactly wherever you are in Russia, in Kazakhstan, in Armenia, in, in Ukraine, you will always have the same Pushkin Street, Lermontsov Street, I don't know, Voroshilov Street or whatever else. So combination of Russian literature, Soviet politics and uh, KGB uh, criminals uh, in the same basket. And uh, I, I do think that this rediscovery of localities is a very interesting thing. And, and maybe this is something that that really this um, anti-imperialist, anti-colonizing, anti-colonization conversation can lead us to rediscover locality of our countries, of our places. What do you think? I think I think it is. I think you're right. Uh, I was thinking about the fact that, as you say, there's many Indian cities. Every Indian city has a has a you know an MG road, which is basically a Mahatma Gandhi road. Um, I'm thinking about the fact that. One of the one of the very strange things that has happened in India has been that, you know, when the British left um, Delhi, uh, obviously all the streets were named after English people and English generals and colonizers of various forms. And over the years, they've been named and renamed depending on, on the government that is in power. And so on the one hand, there is a, a decolonization where, you know, uh, a nationalist government comes in and says, okay, we're going to call them, you know, name them after these four or five people who, who we hold dear. And, and then um, another government comes in, which has a different reading of the past. And it's like, no, we're going to name those, rename those, those streets again after our heroes. Right. And, and I think that, that you, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, Benedict Anderson's imagined communities, like it's, it kind of goes out of fashion and it comes back into fashion, you know, every now and then, but it does consistently remind me of the fact that, yes, that, that, that very few sort of nations are, are quote unquote natural, right? They have to sort of be summoned into being and this, this form of summoning them into being one people under one flag, under one king is, is like a very, very, it's a very, very violent process. And I actually have been very interested in one of the things I'm going to do, and I and I wish I hope you can you can recommend a, a, a good place where I can read more about this is in, in some of your your public comments, you've talked about a, a a sort of Ukrainian tradition of self-organizing communities. And I think that that is something that that strikes me as very interesting because I think these are histories that exist all over the world of 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 self-organizing communities that that are less hierarchical, uh, that are more sort of um, that 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 hold together without without necessarily imposing themselves on on those around them. And one of the things I've been thinking about is what is a good size for a nation state where subnationalities are also respected, where um, where you know you don't have to oppress or you don't have to colonize central India to ensure that North India has enough electricity or, you know, you don't have to, you know, oppress 
and colonize and occupy Ukraine so that the rest of the USSR has enough zinc or copper or steel or whatever it is that they try to make, like where you don't have to uh, mass incarcerate, you know, a, you know, a, a entire cross section of of black men in America just to kind of produce a certain form of 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 daily life and 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 politics. Like, what is a good size? And I think that is something that I've just been thinking again and again about in the context of Ukraine. And and I would love actually for 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 your thoughts on 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 what is a way to build a community of people without oppressing other people that's a very good question and probably it's a, it's a, it's a story for for another hour of conversation <laughs> what we know from the history of political thought is that um, the uh, of, uh, democracies can also can only survive in small places right this is what aristotle taught us about polis this is what jean jacques rousseau taught us if we talk about the european tradition but actually ukrainian story ukrainian literature shows us and tells us that if you have a small community you can have extreme violence in this small community and one of the literary texts that are in our canon uh, like Kaidasheva Simya by Nichui Levitsky or uh, Alexander Dovzhenko, Zacharovana Desna, uh, and, and some others, tell you that in local communities, in small communities, you can have extreme violence as well, based upon also different hierarchies, family hierarchies, or just force hierarchies. So I don't think that this is only a matter of size. This is really a matter of um, of constant constant fight for for rights, and uh, the the societies are different not in not only in in the way how the hierarchies are present or not present, they are also different in the way whether the citizens are really fighting for their rights, continue the fighting for you for for their rights. This is. This is one of the questions, because Ukraine is also kind of a romanticized sometimes, as as if all all people here are so brave, etc. Which is not the case, obviously. People are different everywhere, and uh, there are very bad cases in Ukraine during this war uh, um, as well. But they are very much discussed, and they are very very much. These cases are very much discussed. They are they're, they're, they're subject to public public discussion and public action. Okay, Aman, thank you so much for this conversation. That was very, very inspiring. And I think we only touched upon certain topics. So maybe we will come back to our dialogue somewhere next time. But thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thank you. And, and you know, it, it's a it's a honor and a privilege to be talking and thinking alongside you. And uh, I hope we continue doing that, if not in podcasts, but at least, you know, over the years. Thank you. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine and its series Thinking in Dark Times by Ukraine World. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current Russian war against Ukraine a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. 
You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.